You're listening to the Writing Wall Podcast, and I'm your host, Stacey Hawks. Every second and fourth Saturday of the month, I will be here at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and many other platforms. This podcast is designed for indie authors to have a platform to share their books, their poetry, and their stories. We also feature well-known and traditional writers that are from my home state of North Carolina, while also featuring local writers from my backyard right here in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Allegheny County. You can connect with us on Twitter at The Writing Wall or on Instagram at WritingsOnTheWall85 and grab our links there to our website so that you can keep up with what's happening with our monthly newsletter. Newsletters go out the first of every month and you can also sign up to follow us on the Wix app because everyone has a story. We want to hear yours. What is your story? Season 5 of the Writing Wall blog and podcast is brought to you by author Brian Livingston of The Habits of Squirrels. The journey of a thousand miles begins with an irate squirrel. In this charming, thoughtful meditation on all of life's journeys, Brian Livingston finds humor, grace, and sunburn on one of America's greatest hikes. You can learn more about Brian in his amazing book, The Habits of Squirrels, at brianlivingstonbooks.com. Listeners and fellow readers alike can also follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash the writing wall to become a sponsor, receive your own personalized book ad, and more. Welcome to our very first Season 5 Going Local segment on the Writing Wall Podcast. I'm going to dive in and start talking about something that all writers across the writing communities of Instagram and Twitter and even Facebook have dealt with at one point in time. Self-editing. Whether we're in school writing papers and being edited by our teachers with those awful red pens or we're doing it ourselves for our WIP. There's no getting away from the fact that you will eventually have to self-edit. And it is always better that we go through our work first so we can kindly figure out if we have plot holes and all that good stuff. But we'll get to that later on this season of the podcast. Right now, let's talk about how to self-edit your writing. Here is a few tips. Structure the task. Put the largest elements, such as plot structure, first. Once satisfied with these, focus on the details of language. Yes, that means making sure the commas are in the correct place, that you have quotation marks where dialogue is needed, and when you're talking about your character's thoughts, that you use italics. Be sure to take a break, because editing can be rough. (laughs) After finishing a draft, put your work aside for a day, a week, whatever you feel comfortable with, and then come back to it with fresh eyes. You stare at something too long, everything starts to run together, and you're not entirely sure that you did what you should have done in the last bit of edits. I've done that. I've been there. It gets exhausting. You have to go back and redo. Do not do that. Take a break. Come back with fresh eyes. 
Use free tools. There's free tools over the internet for editing. Grammarly has a free version. There's several I know. There's HemingwayApp.com. That's another. So just be sure to use those tools. You can also use a self-editor in Word. That does kind of help some. I mean, they do catch the misspelled words. Sometimes comma places, and sometimes when we skip words, it'll help you fill them in. My absolute favorite self-editing tool is reading aloud, or get your computer to read to you. There is programs for this too online, by the way. You can go online, search, read my document out loud, and you can go to things like naturalreaders.com or ttsreader.com to receive assistance with that. Here's another big one. Make sure that you check your tense. Don't be saying things like were when it was. Mix it up. Reading a text over and over might make your eyes used to the error. So try reading backwards from the last word to the first to pick up your heart to spot errors. Be ruthless. Don't be afraid to cut a segment or a scene or a paragraph that you don't need or feel like you can do without. Also change the picture. When I say change the picture, I'm saying change the font size, the font color, and if need be, and if you're a color-coded learner like I am, use your highlighters. You can often even highlight a certain segment within those Read My Document To Me Out Loud apps or websites. And that really helps too, because if it's a problem area and you get to hear it over and over and over, you'll eventually figure out what to do. That's it for me, this Going Local segment. When I come back, we're going to do the one thing everyone's been waiting for. That's right, I'm talking shameless self-promo Saturday shoutouts. So stick around. Welcome to our Season 5 opener of the Writing Wall Podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Hawks, and it is great to be back behind the mic for a new lineup of amazing writers, poets, and storytellers. We hope everyone had a wonderful summer and caught our shoutouts along the way. We also appreciate our new followers and supporters on Buy Me a Coffee. You can visit us there for our Season 5 opener exclusive extra featuring tonight's guest author, Enda Ganji, who was adopted at birth in New York City. An only child, he made no effort to explore his lineage until at the age of 67, a visit to a cemetery where members of his adoptive mother's family were buried stirred his interest. Welcome author Ed DeGangi with us now. If anyone understands the power of genealogy, history, and family, look no further than him. Ed, welcome to season five and thank you for being our opener. Well, thanks so much for having me, Stacy. It's been a, seems like we've been talking a long time. I'm happy to be here with you. Tell listeners about yourself, where you reside, and what genre you write. Yeah, I I live in Hillsboro, North Carolina with my wife. We have a son who is getting married in just another month. He's in Durham. And um, we've been here now about 10 years. We came from Pittsburgh and before Pittsburgh, Houston, Texas. and, And we both grew up in the New York City area. So we've been kind of itinerant, but I think this is our last stop if all goes well. As far as what I write, I've 
I've been writing memoir and my, my book, The Gift Best Given, is a story about my late in adulthood search for the woman who had placed me for adoption at the time of my birth. And it tells the story of my journey and it tells her story, which just was a one series of surprising discoveries after another, the biggest of which was that she was a celebrity ice skater in the big ice shows of the 1940s and 1950s. So that just opened up a big opportunity to do that discovery, but then you know that much more opportunity to explore further once some of that was identified. You started writing and researching your background when you turned 70. First, why did you wait so long to search? And second, do you feel it made a difference in terms of researching? Well, why did I wait? You know, I, as I said, I was adopted at birth. I was literally taken home from the hospital at a day old. And the only parents they ever knew were the parents who adopted me. And they, you know, they, they could not have loved a natural born child any more than they loved me. And I, I just never had any, any interest, any, any real thought of other parents other than them. And, you know, a lot of people wait and, you know, they, they, they sort of itch to explore. And as soon as their parents are passed away, they'll, they'll then dive right in. But when, when I dove in, my dad had been passed away for almost 40 years, my mother for almost 30. So that was not the case. It just one day hit me that, you know, this is, this is the time. There were a lot of things that fell into place between, uh, you know, the online databases that have gotten so popular all of the talking about DNA testing, which, you know, which is a, an industry now. And I had been reading a book called The Lost by an author by the name of Daniel Mendelssohn. And he, he wrote a book, I think in 2006, which just fascinated me. And it was his search for, you know, for family members who had been lost in the Holocaust. And he, he knew what had happened to them in, in general terms. But he went on a search to find out what happened to each one of them specifically. And yeah, Mendelssohn is a is a well-regarded author. He's a very well-known uh, journalist, and he's a, a highly regarded professor. So he had money behind him, and he traveled the world making connections with with the last remaining people who you know who might have known his story. And that just inspired me. And I was I was on my third reading of that book when I finally decided, you know what, the time is now. There are some tools available to me. And I, I had access to a piece of paper that had a strange name on it. And in my, you know, in my heart, I knew that was my birth mother's name. And one day I just you know, went to the library, plugged into, into Ancestry.com and the story began. When was the moment you decided this story wasn't just research, that you wanted to turn it into a book? Well, interestingly enough, I was I I joined a memoir group at a local library, and what I was capturing at that point was just my discovery process, the the journey. And as I started to discover more about my birth mother and how interesting, you know, that story was, how interesting the coincidences were that that led me to know more about her. I had a friend who's a, a fairly uh, well, he's he's a good author. He he writes on a very variety of topics, and he kept on saying, "You need to write a book. You need to write a book." And I one day sat down and said, "Okay, we're going to go and write a book." So I had my the memoir pieces I had been working on, and then I started capturing the pieces about about my mother's life and what I discovered there. Let's talk about your birth mother, Genevieve. Was there something that you learned that really stood out to you about her in particular? 
I think there are a couple of things. You know, number one, in very general terms, by the time I was done with the book, I had a true appreciation of the sacrifice and selflessness that a a woman needs to show to place somebody for adoption. I think, you know, up until then, if you said, tell me about adoption, I would have just sort of said, well, mom gives the baby up and goes on with her life. And it's it's not a one-time event. It's not a one-day event. It's it's something that carries through probably for the rest of that woman's life. So I had an appreciation of that. The other appreciation I had, I met a, a handful of people who had known her. And, you know, we had some great conversations and everybody was so uniform in, in talking about how generous she was, how kind she was, how, how soft-spoken she was. And I got a real good feel for the kind of person she was. And she was also a very, very, very focused person. From the time she was in, you know, today's equivalent of middle school, she wanted to be an ice skater. And nothing stood between that and 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 her and she left home at the age of 17 in 1942 uh she was living just outside of new york city and took a train all alone across the country to join up with an ice skating troupe in vancouver british columbia and for the next several years traveled across the united states as a performer and her yeah her career was was in ascent when she apparently had a summer romance and and came home unexpectedly pregnant and she the interesting part was you know i the name i had for her was her birth name i ultimately and i couldn't find much beyond that using that name i found very little but ultimately i found out that she had adopted a screen a performing name so she went from genevieve narowski to genevieve naris which obviously went into newspapers and onto pictures much more easily. And then subsequently, I found out that she got married seven years after my birth. And you know, she then had her husband's name, which was, was Meza. So when I had those other names to search with, I, I got onto Google, and which is everyone's first stop. And I found two blogs right away. One was an antiques dealer in South Carolina who talked about, you know, she had a page up about an auction she had gone to and some rather large kind of folk art pieces that she purchased that had been produced by Genevieve and her husband. And what it said was that she had been an ice skater. They had both been ice skaters. So armed with that, I put in Genevieve Naris Ice Skater and came up with another blog for a woman in Atlanta who basically had half a dozen pictures of my birth mother posted along with a professional contract and her middle school diploma and saying I was at an auction and it turned out they'd been at the same auction and there was this box of ephemera that came up for auction we didn't know what it was we didn't know who she was but it was a glamorous woman a glamorous time so I just bought it so I I located that woman and yeah this is probably five years after they had purchased these things, not much hoping that she still had them, but she did. And she said, you need to come here right now. And my wife and I traveled to Atlanta probably about a week later. And, you know, we, we spent several hours with, with this lady who was a picker. Yeah, so she bought little items at auction and then resold them and her husband. And they brought this big carton of memorabilia to us. And it was just loaded with photos and things that belonged to my mother and photos that belonged to other people that she had ice skated with. When it came down to it, you know, we had debated, okay, if they're willing to sell this, what should we pay them? 
or what shall we offer? And you know what? At at some point, they just sort of pushed the box across the table and said, you know, this is yours. Said, we've been holding it for you. We've just been waiting for you to show up. And that's really where the story broke wide open as far as finding my the identity of my mother and learning her story. There's just never a dull moment in genealogy, is there? <laughs> oh, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> And genealogy is a big part of your book. Is it something you'll continue to do, or have you already started an ancestry tree to preserve all the information? I have started the tree. I can't tell you that I've been terribly diligent. I I sort of run hot and cold with it. Her parents came from or were of Polish descent. That's on her paternal side. On her maternal side, uh, that family came either from, you know, coincidentally today ukraine or very southern poland and and there's less known about them that was a very very big family and they basically just dropped off the map a you know i i i could trace back as far as my oh my great grandparents on that side and beyond that the records are just not available here I've worked and I poked and I think, you know, if it's in Ukraine, I'm a little concerned with what the ultimate fate of those records will be if they exist. But they were farmers. You know, they I always say they were they came here and they were peasant farmers. And interestingly enough, they you know, the Genovese grandparents ran a farm just outside of New York City. I, I don't know how familiar you are with the city, but it's five boroughs. And they farmed in Long Island City in Queens, which is now a, you know, uber-developed skyscrapered area. And, you know, and then they moved out onto Long Island, which at the time was, you know, was much more, it was farm country. And there were a lot of Ukrainian farmers there. And they grew cabbages and potatoes. And, and I've, I've traced it that far, but, you know, that, their property is now a housing development. So I, I really have not found the transition between yeah, their passing and how that, that land got into you know, into the hands of a housing developer. Though, though the 1950 census is starting to look like it may give me a little bit of help. How long would you say it took you to write this book? And I'm talking about from the time you conceived the idea to publication. No, no, you don't. And the city goes through, you know, constantly. It took probably a little bit better than three years. When I was done, I, I went through the pitch process to, you know, to agents. And that, that's a frustrating process. And, you know, I, I got them out and I probably pitched about 80 different agents. I got three or four responses. Uh, one saying, send me the manuscript, never heard again, decided at my age, I was just way too, you know, I didn't have that many years left in life to wait for traditional publishers. So I, I pushed on and, you know, I, I found myself all the component contributors to, to putting a book together. What I had at the time was a, a manuscript, which essentially was in two pieces. Book one was my search. And book two is what I found. There's kind of a bumpy transition right in the middle. And I, my editor went through it and she said, you know, I said, you're paying me for this. I'm going to make a suggestion, which is very different from what you have. And essentially she shuffled all those chapters kind of like you would a deck of cards. You know, so they're now interleaved. So it's a little bit about the search, a little bit about the discovery, a little bit more search. And it reads much more smoothly and it reads yeah, you know, end to end from, you know, from my beginning the search right through Genevieve leaving home and then five years later leaving the hospital after she had 
given birth. You have a beautiful book cover. Tell us a little bit about that cover and the photo that's on it. The photo is of my mother, and it's it's on the photo itself. You know, it basically says August 1947, San Francisco, California. And in the process of my research, I found out that my mother at the time I was conceived was skating with an organization called Ice Follies. And Ice Follies every year spent the summer in San Francisco. And during the day, they would rehearse the coming year's program. And at night, they would then perform the past year's program for a, pay, for a paying audience. So I knew where she was. I was certain of that. And I, I had, you know, to find out where they were, I, had, I went on eBay. And I very, very fortuitously found a schedule for 1947. And it said where they were by date, by city. And said, okay, I've never seen another one like that for any date. And none of the programs that I had purchased, which were sold at the shows, had dates attached to them. So that was good. So I knew that. And the photograph, my, my birth mother maintained meticulous photo albums. From the time she left home, she, you know, she had them in chronological order. Every photograph was dated. Every photograph had its location. And if there were other people in it, she would have their names on it. And I came across this photograph that's on the cover when I first met my my maternal half-brother. And he was having a very difficult time getting his head around the fact that I was who I said I was and you know what had transpired transpired he was he was conceived after his mother was married in 1955 and and born in 56 so eight years after I was born and he brought out these photo albums we had just been talking he kept on saying no my mama and my daddy were always together and he brought us some posters which just had daddy's name on them but not mama and I knew what the story was but I just sort of let it go and he brought out the photo album and he was flipping pages and we went from 42 to 43 to 44. As we started to approach 1947, I told him again, I, I said, Ted, in 1947, your mother, our mother, was in San Francisco with Ice Follies. And I was conceived in August of 1947. And he kind of gritted his teeth and he turned that page. And in an album which had nothing but black and white brownie snapshots in the middle of the next page was this one color snapshot which said august 1947 san francisco california and he kind of looked at it and he looked at me and he closed up the album and got up and he went and he put it away and he came back and said would you like a beer that was the first inclination that he had that this was really true and and yeah i had brought a I brought a copy of that document that I had mentioned that had my birth mother's name on it. And it was in her, her handwriting. And by then I knew that it was the right person. And she had very clearly identifiable handwriting. I showed it to him and he kind of looked and that's, yeah, then he was certain. No, 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 no. He was, yeah, and he basically, we just sort of left it at that. We didn't talk about it anymore. We We drank some beer and the next day I came back and he said, I guess every woman has got a secret. And, you know, mama certainly had one. And, yeah, my guess is my birth mother probably never told a soul. You know, she was in she was in the position 
given her, you know, her her career and she was making good money at that time to manage her pregnancy to manage the adoption. She did have the support of her oldest sister and her sister's husband, but I don't think anybody else ever knew. I've I've met some cousins since and said, you know, what did you know? And they all said we didn't know a thing and in our family if one of us knew, everyone would have known. The gift best given is a perfect title. I think it speaks volumes. How did you come up with it and what does it mean to you? Well, there's some dialogue in the in the time that Genevieve is in the hospital and and there's a character Mrs. Blumenthal who uh who at first is rather disapproving of Genevieve, you know, it's just it's a single woman who's come in pregnant and you know, and kind of a, a I wouldn't say a high roller, but a celebrity type. But with a little bit of time, you know, Mrs. Blumenthal and Genevieve build a relationship where where Mrs. Blumenthal kind of assumes a, a maternal role to Genevieve. The she fills in for because Genevieve was not able to talk to her own mother for fear of you know what the what the reaction would be. And you know, and Genevieve basically you know, or Mrs. Blumenthal at some point told her, you know, you've been given a gift. And yeah, you know, Genevieve said, "Yeah, you know, my ice skating was always my gift. I'm, I'm not sure what to do." And she said, "Yeah, you know, I said, okay, I've been given a gift. I don't, yeah, you know, I'm not quite sure how, what to do with it." And, and Mrs. Blumenthal, in her wisdom, you know, because Genevieve obviously had some options, said, "Sometimes the best gift is not the one you receive, but the gift that's that you give to another. And you know, there may not be room for that gift in your life." it might change the life of someone else and ultimately that's you know that's the direction that Genevieve obviously chose what is something that you hope readers take away after having read the gift best given well i think you know number 1 it tells a very positive adoption story not all adoption stories are positive and i was that was kind of naive when i wanted to to promote the book i reached out to some of these social media groups about adoption and found a whole lot of angry people you know they were not happy with their adoptions for any number of good reasons and you know and I, in retrospect you know you go approach a you know a support group you know there aren't that many support groups for happy people you know these are folks who need to talk through issues and to try to find some comfort so you know so i think you know this is a one of the positive stories and there are many 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 out there i don't think that should get lost in the you know in the static of the people who have not had those experiences but you know and those are certainly viable and and understandable experiences um the other part i think is is what i s- spoke about before which you know is that a woman who surrenders a child for adoption is likely not doing that out of some convenience you know it's a decision that she's making for the best interest of that that child and i've got great great respect for birth mothers at this point and there are a lot of them out there in in doing publicity for my book and going you know to book fairs or to book clubs or to readings it's almost invariable that somebody will come up if not a number and say I surrendered a child for adoption at some point or I have children that we've adopted or I'm adopted myself you know I sometimes talk about the story we have a a lovely independent bookstore here in Hillsboro Purple Crow Books and you know just like everybody I wanted my book on the bookshelf in a in a bookstore 
And I finally figured out the economics. You know, that's, that's not the best thing in the world, but it's but it feels good to see your book there. And I went in, I was talking with the owner and, and, and we had a conversation about my adoption. She said, you know what? I'm adopted too. And yeah, so it was kind of a neat coincidence that we have a good coffee shop directly across the street from her and, and a woman with whom I had recently become acquainted was over there. And, and I sat down to have coffee with her and I mentioned the experience across the street. And she said, I've given up a child for adoption. You know, so it's someplace out there and it's it's with pretty good frequency there's you know there's somebody who's been touched by adoption i think i've heard numbers as as high as one out of every four people have has some direct contact i love how stories like this connect to other stories and so many other people for a much broader and richer deeper experience when it comes to writing and also to sharing the story Oh, we've had some wonderful meetings and, and some great stories. You know, I, I told the story in the book about a visit we paid to a lady out in Minneapolis who, when I met with the pickers, they gave me some photographs and she had autographed her picture to the best roommate ever. And I said, okay, if she was her roommate, she's got to know something about my mother. And it turned out that, you know, she did. She wasn't able to tell me a whole lot about my situation but she did give me a lot of background on my mother. And then she very casually mentioned, oh, by the way, I dated Ronald Reagan. So, so, okay. And, you know, and then toward the end of the writing, my son and I were out in Georgia. We had gone to visit my brother again. And I had made contact with a lady there who ran a, a costume service. She rented costumes to, to theatrical groups and, you know, and church groups and such. And, and she had had some contact with my birth mother late in life and actually gave me a couple of pieces of uh, the props that my mother had created and then given to her. But, you know, you talk about odd stories. She was separated at that point and told me that her husband was now, you know, she picked up the phone one day and this woman said, can I talk to your husband? She innocently put him on. And, and this woman turned to, out to be in Sydney, Australia. You know, her husband was a pilot. And, and she said, now I watch her on the, you know, on the, on the housewives of Sydney at, uh, during the week and she's she said it's rather bizarre but you know yeah it's it's no there's nothing dull so big question are you working on another book and if so what can you share with our listeners i am and i am working rather slowly my birth mother lived her life probably in three stages as i understand it you know this book the gift best given was about that first stage and it was the time she left home to the time she surrendered me for adoption and then ultimately went back to ice skating. She did go back to skating. She toured Central and South America and then Europe and, and then came back to New York in 1962 for her parents' 50th anniversary. So what I'm writing about is her return to New York, her um, getting back together with Mrs. Blumenthal, and the discussion that they sit and have, and I, I see it as, again, kind of two pieces. One is the travel that she embarked on and the performance. The other piece is, you know, is that, that issue again of, of the experience of surrendering a child for adoption and the fact that it doesn't leave you. And, you know, and that she's still carrying the, you know, my shadow or the burden of having done that. And I, I think she's there and... Uh, yeah, she'll go through the travelogue piece with Mrs. Blumenthal, but uh, she's, she's looking for Mrs. Blumenthal's wisdom at that point. 
And I know your followers and our listeners who have read The Gift Best Given cannot wait to read that next installment. What advice would you give to someone who is hoping to publish? Well, I guess twofold, and I think they connect, you know, whether it's just a genealogical journey searching for family or you want to get a book written, uh, my advice is start, you know, start it now. And, you know, I, I took a long time getting rolling with it. But I think once you start to build a little bit of momentum, it starts to come to you if it's meant to be. You know, so and educate yourself to the greatest degree that you can. You know, writing the book is one piece, sending it out into the world is a whole other Definitely sounds solid advice. Don't do like I did. Don't do things backward. <laughs> I did my own first book backward. Our first book is really a stepping stone, to be honest. And boy, what we can learn from that first book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I my book was... my I published my book in May of 2020. So we were in the teeth of the pandemic at that point. Everyone kept saying, oh, just, just wait, it'll be over. Nah, I think I'll do it now. But like you, I published the book and they said, okay, now how do I get people to buy it? And, you know, fortunately, you know, I've, I've had support from friends and relatives and it's taken on a life of its own. So it's, it's sold very nicely, but it's taken a lot of work to, that should have been done before the book ever, you know, ever came live. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I've, I've listened to a number of your podcasts and I think I just, I think it was Landis Wade who said, you know, I wrote the book and then I waited seven months so I could do all the stuff in between. I mean, yeah, if you're first time at this, you need to look at the people who will format your book, put a cover on the book and edit your book. And it doesn't have to be insanely expensive, but it's, you know, the more eyes you can get on it and the more hands that, that are laid on it, the better your book will be. The writing communities of Twitter and Instagram have also really surprised me. There's not been a time that I haven't jumped on there and asked a question that someone hasn't been gracious enough to answer it and provide me with some information or point me in the right direction. Yep. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are very generous. I think, yeah, I found that in my journey and I found it with the book as well. A lot of generous people. So where can listeners find your book, The Gift Best Given? Well, Gift Best Given is widely available, any independent bookstore, any of the online retailers. It's also available on my website, and I, you know, I will send out an autographed and personalized copy if same day or the next day as the order is received. I accept, you know, credit cards there, and they go out well-packed, and, you know, and the book arrives in impeccable condition. And, you know, for those of your listeners who are up in the Allegheny County area, you know, I'll be in... It's, it's currently available at A Touch of Grace in Sparta. It's actually available for purchase at the Sparta Library as well. And I will be at Music on Main on September 2nd at A Touch of Grace, and I'll be signing books there. So if, you know, whether you want to purchase a book or just come visit, please, please do. And I have a website. It's digangiauthor.com. Ed, thank you again for sharing your story with us this evening and for being part of our season five. We encourage our listeners and followers to follow you on social media and find your book on Amazon. Well, Stacy, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed being here with you. Join us for a very special guest on August 17th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time as we talk with author Terry M. Brown of Sunflowers Beneath the Snow. And for historical fiction lovers, check back with us on August 27th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Susan Higginbotham's interview. 
Follow the Writing Wall podcast on Twitter at the Writing Wall or on Instagram at Writings on the Wall eighty five for all the latest. Stick around because when I come back, we're going to do the one thing everyone's been waiting for. That's right, shameless self promo Saturday shoutouts. <laughs> Alright, time for our very first Shameless Self-Promo Saturday shoutouts of Season 5. We're going to start shouting out our summer shoutouts this evening. The first one being Amina by Rayona Lovely. Amina and her dad dream of the day he'll be a famous rapper, but her mom is angry all the time and thinks he should focus on his real job. At the age of 10, Amina knows her parents' relationship is unhealthy. When her mom burns her dad's notebooks of lyrics, Amina worries he will give up on his dream, and she worries he won't survive her mother's abuse. Amina knows her dad has what it takes to make it big, but can he break free of mom's cruel control and make their dreams come true? Find out in Amina by Rayona Lovely on Amazon in Kindle and paperback format. You can also follow Rayona on Twitter. Another great shout-out read comes from author Christine Herbert, The Color of the Elephant. Reviewers say this is an outstanding new voice in a memoir by Christine Herbert, and it takes the reader on a time machine tour of her Peace Corps volunteer service as a health worker and educator from 2004 to 2006 in Zambia. At turns, this book is harrowing, playful, dewy-eyed, and wise. The author's heart and candor illuminate every chapter, whether she is the heroine of the tale or her own worst enemy. It has been dubbed a must-read for the armchair adventurer. Be sure to follow Christine on social media and find her book on Amazon.com. Moving on, another great book to consider picking up is Escape Route by Elon Barnahama. Set in New York City during the tumultuous late 1960s, it's told by teenager Zach, a first-generation son of Holocaust survivors and New York Mets fan who becomes obsessed with the Vietnam War and with finding an escape route for his family for when he believes the U.S. will round up and incarcerate its Jews. One reviewer says that this author has given us a powerful coming-of-age story set against the tumult of the 1960s, the war in Vietnam, and the power of memory and Jewish identity in a family of Holocaust survivors. Follow Elon on Twitter at Elon Barnahama and on Instagram as well. You can check out Escape Route on Amazon.com. Big shout out to upcoming writer of Instagram, Sarah Contopolis, for her short story in Big Bend Literary Magazine. You can catch her and other great stories on Big Bend. Just visit their website, bigbendliterary.com. Sarah's story is about a Washington woman, Judith, who lives in a nursing home and separates from her body at night to travel to various places. She has one final adventure and the story ends with her in the Chihuahuan Desert. Last but not least, this shameless self-promo Saturday, I'm going to shout out Asa Rodriguez of Twitter and Instagram. You can find Asa's books titled Benjamin Jones, The Call of the Shaman. It's a series on Amazon.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at the God Within one the number one at the end there. That's it for me, this shameless self-promo Saturday. Be sure to check out Terry M. Brown's interview with us on the 17th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Because we all have a story, the Writing Wall podcast wants to hear yours. What is your story?
Anytime I purchase a book, I always review, and if I really enjoy reading your work, rest assured it may be shared here on this podcast with my listeners and followers. Of course, I will do so with permission from the author or authors first. Please like, follow, and share this information with other writers, and if you ever need a writer's lift, visit me on social media. Thank you all again for being here for this podcast. I look forward to hearing from you and learning more about the stories you weave.